Well, good morning. If you would please open to Acts chapter 2. Also, if you would be in prayer for Harry and Catherine, who hopefully Ivy will say, okay, tomorrow I'll come. I told Harry earlier, he's the first lesson, and the baby calls the shots. The baby's not coming, but they are scheduled to go in tomorrow night for an induction. So, uh, praying for you guys. It's, oh, it's such, such a fun thing to watch a child come into the world. And uh, very similarly, we have the, the Holy Spirit we're celebrating today, the, the day of Pentecost. Uh, uniquely, I figured out when... Well, I do every year. I look up on Google when Pentecost Sunday is, but I wanted to preach Pentecost Sunday on Pentecost Sunday. So this is Pentecost Sunday, and we'll be preaching, uh, reviewing, and learning from uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 2 that will help us understand what God was doing when he gave the Spirit on that day. <coughs> and as, as Kerr has been, as he prayed, and uh, what we have in this this study of the book of Acts is, uh, there's a witness component. Remember Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses, Jesus told his disciples. And they, there's a, an aspect where he says, go wait for the promise of the Spirit, because they can't be the witnesses until they have the Spirit, because the Spirit is the power for that witness. And that's what Pentecost celebrates. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Lord, help us understand. Help us experience your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a difference between an inauguration day and a coronation day. Uh, King Charles in England celebrated his coronation. Uh, a coronation is a recognition of the reality of a sovereign. So a coronation, uh, he's crowned on that day, but everybody knows he's the king. It's a recognition of what already is fact and everybody knows. Inauguration is very different. And what we celebrate every time 
we have a new president and any elected office, there's an inauguration. There's the beginning of a, pro- a period of time. There's a beginning of a process. This Pentecost day was the inauguration day for the church. Follows 10 days after Jesus' coronation, which was his ascension. He ascends into heaven, and we see in Daniel chapter 7 that he is clothed, he is crowned, and all dominion and authority is given to him forever and ever and ever. Dominion and dominion. It is a miraculous, powerful, here Pentecost is a miraculous, powerful, emphatic display of God's presence filling his people. Let's talk about that for a second. This was the inaugural fillering, fillering. Can have that. Inaugural filling of the Spirit, which is the baptism of the Spirit that John the Baptist prophesied. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist says there's coming, there's a baptism. This was the baptism that he prophesied. This is what Jesus said, go and wait for the promise. Pentecost was the inauguration of God's Spirit dwelling in God's people. Now what is this Pentecost? It was a celebration even before uh, the day that the Spirit came to indwell. Believers, the disciples were obeying Jesus' command to wait. They were praying, they're waiting. And they were in Jerusalem for this celebration. Pentecost, uh, the, the Greek word penta is 50. So you have 50 days. It says 50 days after Passover is what Pentecost literally is. But it was, it was also called the Feast of Weeks. And we have that in the Old Testament where God said you have to do this after Passover, have the Feast of Weeks. It occurred as a yearly, uh, an annual celebration of first fruits of the wheat harvest. But Pentecost was also the feast that celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It was looked at as seven weeks after Passover that the law was given. When they, uh, the exodus out of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai and they're given the law. Now, if we think about it in that way, this day, this celebration was perfectly choreographed to be the moment that God gave his spirit to his people. Remember Jeremiah's prophecy about God's law being located inside of his people? Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, this prophecy is about an intimacy of a relationship. But the original hearers and the readers of this prophecy later on would have been very confused because remember where God's, God's law dwelled previously? In the Ark of the Covenant, in the room which is in the temple called the Holy of Holies. Could anybody go in there? No, and you couldn't touch the Ark, you'd die. So you can't go in there. And So the Holy of Holies, that place where the high priest goes just once a year, that's where God's law dwelled. God's law was in his presence. And for the original hearers to hear something, wait, that law that is untouchable and unapproachable upon the curse of death is going to be in me? It's mind-blowing. The miracle of God's law being on the inside of his people was huge 
for those original hearers and then readers. God brought his people together to put the law of, inside of his people on this day of Pentecost. But how exactly was the law supposed to get inside God's people? Well, we put this together with Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Here again, an intimacy of relationship with God that Ezekiel now, and same thing that he told through Jeremiah, you shall be my people and I will be your God. But God God's law, remember, in, in, in all over the Psalms, is considered and described as light and life for God's people. Jesus is also known as God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So when we put all this together, God's law, God's Word, is going to be on the inside of His people, and it's through the presence of His Holy Spirit. Think about it. This is incredible. God dwells on the inside of his people. The same God that said, let there be light, dwells on the inside of his people. The same God that called to a dead Jesus, arise. It lives on the inside of his people. That's us. And how, how can we live like that and not feel like it's not a reality? Because I know I struggle. We struggle. But how is this going to be a reality that the power of light itself is on the inside? The power of God holding all things together. The same power that tells the constellation Orion to stay in place is the same, the same voice that we sense in our hearts telling us, be still and know that I am God. Here's the struggle. The stars obey him perfectly. We don't. Oh, that we would. Oh, that we would go into this intimacy of relationship and we would know God's presence so uniquely and so deeply that it would calm us and people would take notice because of, of the life that we live not necessarily so much that it's, it's loud in, in obnoxiousness, but it's loud in peace and in grace and in love and in mercy. This, this is the same, the same reality and gospel that was promised through Adam and Eve's sin. And then foreshadowed in Noah being saved in the ark from the judgment waters. And the same gospel and reality that was preached to Abraham, who, remember, he died looking for a city whose architect and founder, builder, is God. He was looking for an eternal city. 
God, God's Spirit made to dwell in our hearts, our hearts now of flesh, not of stone, through God, God made His Spirit. Sorry, that's, a, that's grammatically incorrect, I think. Pentecost is God's Spirit made to dwell in our hearts through the forgiveness by faith in Jesus' death for us. It's a big deal. Old Testament writers and prophets longed for the day that would see sin, sin separation done away with by one sacrifice. They longed. Isn't there just one sacrifice potentially that would do away with all of this? And a king that would rule and reign over them with grace and peace and not selfishness or fear. You know, that would have been enough for God to accomplish. Do away with sin. Give us a king that rules perfectly. But he doesn't stop there because why? We're promised in the scriptures that he has more grace. He has more grace for us. He resides now on the inside of his people. This was the intention of all the Old Testament promises. I, I believe this was the intention. Like ask, answering the, for me, I think this is a reasonable answer to this question. Because I've asked it many times. Why would God create Adam and Eve without sin, knowing in his omniscience that they would sin and be separated from him? Because I think God's whole plan was to demonstrate his love in dying for us and rising again to be on the inside of us. Why did it take so long? Why did you get thousands of years and then Jesus, then we're a couple thousand years later? I don't know. But I think God's original intention, before he said, let there be light, before he created anybody on this planet, I think his intention was, my plan is to dwell in my creation, in my people. This is the almighty God of all eternity who is omnipotent and he resides in his people. That's us. God inaugurated this new era of indwelling with three miracles that we see in this passage. One is sight. I'm sorry, the first one's sound. Sound, then sight, and then speech. We see a, a here, we read of a sound, a divine sound. God used several common features to clarify and help us, his disciples first, but then us to understand his work. He uses many of the same elements to reveal the consistency and connection to his work. He used wind and fire so his people and then we could know for certain that this was God representing and doing this work. He's using elements that he used all over the Old Testament. He used wind. He used fire. And Luke tells us that the disciples felt a wind that increased it increased to, to where the wind had a sound. That's strange. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. How, how we, we know when the effects, the sound, wind, wind blows through a tree and we hear the tree, right? This is like, is water wet kind of question. So is the wind the sound? No, this, the wind was the sound. On this, did I confuse y'all with this water wet? It's like a, a Gen C thing they love to argue about. Is water wet? There's other things we need to be talking about in life. But yeah, it's wet. <laughs> I remember uh, we wrote out 
Hurricane Ida a couple years ago, and I remember going outside because I had never ridden through a hurricane like that. And I remember going outside in my front porch and watching this huge wind come by. And at some points, the wind blew so hard that I felt it in my chest. And it was weird. It was disconcerting. I'm going inside now. That's a little strange. I'm not used to that feeling, and I don't want that feeling ever again. But it was this weird, it, it grabbed me. I think that's what gale force winds do, hurricane force. Think that for this. It's, it's such a unique sound-wind combination that it's not just people in the upper room, the 120 in the upper room. That, remember, the crowd gathers because they hear the wind. This is a miraculous event. In the Old Testament, the, the word for spirit is actually wind or breath. The Holy Spirit was filling the room, the house they were in, as a wind. People gather outside. They're trying to figure out what's going on and what is happening. And God does that because he gathers a crowd. For Remember, Peter's getting ready to preach to him as well. But before he preaches to him, there's a miraculous sign that is given in sight. Well, this is first the disciples upstairs. Divine sight. Then, in miraculous order, there appeared from the wind fire. Think about that. How does fire produce wind? This is a miracle. This is not just, these are everyday elements, but put together in a way that God says, I'm in control because I'm telling you something. This may be uh, the exact fire that was in the burning bush that Moses responded to that was, it was not consuming it, but it was fire. And then we're told that the fire divided up and rested on the top of each of the disciples. Again, in the Old Testament, God, he responded to sacrifices of his people with fire. His fire had consumed the sacrifice in Christ, and now the fire will burn in the hearts of his disciples without consuming them. Remember, God is a, he's a fire, Hebrews tells us, a consuming fire. But yet, he doesn't consume us to death because he accepted Jesus' sacrifice. There's no need to consume us, because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Second Chronicles 7, verses 1 and 2 say, <clears throat> As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. See, that's happening in the temple but I think this is exactly what the disciples were experiencing as well. Now, the significance, I believe, of the fire dividing up and resting on each individual disciple was a cosmic, global, heavenly announcement that God's temple would not be in one location anymore, but his temple would be his disciples. The wind and the fire that the disciples experienced was God relocating his temple. It went from a place that people would come to visit to a people who would go do the visiting. What a miracle. And I think that was represented when Jesus died and the curtain of the, that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. And we have uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is letting us know we are those temples. Do you know that 
you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Apostle Peter says, when you put all these people together, you you see a brick upon a brick, and and this is God building his house. He's building his glory. He's building the house that keeps his glory, but he does it with people. He does it with his people, those who come to him in saving faith. not, Not trusting your own merit, your own good works, but trusting completely in Jesus did it all, and there's nothing left for you to do except trust him. Believe him and trust him. Now this booming miracle on the day of Pentecost is the fire of God filling individual disciples in that upper room. And then we have divine speech. Remember, that there's, uh, God is, is affirming his work through these miracles. Affirming his, relocating his temple through these miracles. And then divine speech, the fire, we're told the fire that rested on the disciples had the appearance of tongues. Now, when I think of that, that looks weird to me. Because I've seen a cow tongue, and that's immediately when I think in my head, I'm like, that's gross. Why would tongues be on top in a fire? This is weird. But God's doing something, and there's more represented that's going on. See, the Spirit was the agent of God's speech in creation and through the word that Jesus was on the earth. The Spirit was that agent of speech. And now, the Spirit is the divine speech for the disciples. The divine speech that was given in this moment. Now, I don't think divine speech is is limited to the gift of tongues. Divine speech, remember, we're going to see in Acts chapter 4 that the disciples were together, together praying in one place and they were all filled with the Spirit and went out and began to speak the word with boldness. There's divine speech is in many forms. But in this situation, the divine speech were evidenced with languages given to the disciples by the Holy Spirit as he gave them the words to say. Languages they didn't learn. And there was a variety of languages because we have people from different areas who are responding saying, we're hearing in our own, they're living in Jerusalem, but they're from out other, but they're not just hearing, in essence, they weren't just hearing English. If we were all hearing them, they were hearing people from Chalmette, like dialects, you know what I'm saying? A cur is a good example of that. They were hearing somebody from the Midwest with a twang. They were hearing a yat from New York, or from New York, listen to me, from New Orleans. They, they were hearing very particularly what they grew up speaking. But the variety of language was given to proclaim the extent of the glory of God. I, I like to think of that as God, he's, just, he's particular, he's going after people, saying, no, this is for you. You know, like we hear God in English, but heaven's not going to be English only. Do we know that? It's not going to be only English. I think it's going to still have all the variety of languages. I think we're just going to be able to understand them well. If not, we'll learn really easily because learning won't be a, a chore like it is here. 
because sin will be removed, so we won't be lazy. We won't, we'll have renewed minds to be able to think glorif- uh, glorifying thoughts about it. Now, we also see when, when these languages come out, it's a powerful, in many ways, it's a reversal of what the Lord did at Babel, confusing languages because of the pride of man. He comes back then, everybody spoke one language, but they're trying to do what? They're making a temple because they want to reach God and also we want to be God. Same sin as Adam and Eve. We don't want to follow God's rules. We want to make up the rules. So we're, let's gather together. Let's build something high so we can make the rules and everybody has to obey us. God confuses their languages and they disperse. Instead of man trying to get to God in this instant, God comes to man and instead of one language that was unified because of their pride, there is now one spirit unifying the language of man around the glorious gospel of Jesus. God does these things. Man can't make this up. Now, the languages, I don't think they were understood by the disciples. I don't think a a disciple knew he was speaking Mandarin Chinese. He's just responding to what the Holy Spirit has done. But we know that the languages were understood by those who were gathered for Pentecost. And there's an ongoing discussion about the nature of the languages and those that are given when believers are baptized in the Spirit. For instance, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, when he and his household are baptized, um, some people would say that these languages are known languages. So the gift of tongues that we read about in 1 Corinthians were known languages, and if it's not a known language, it's just Babel, like connecting it to Babel. It's in pride and shouldn't be done. But in Acts chapter 10, we see that, uh, and uh, part of that discussion is that tongues is for proclamation of the gospel. Tongues is for evangelism. But that doesn't quite follow with Acts chapter 10 because we have only the disciples. Peter and his companions are there. The lost aren't there. Peter and his companions are in Acts chapter 10. So we have the, the response to the presence of the Spirit coming, but it's not for unbelievers, it was believers there. Now, the the debate can go on and on, but I personally think that it's the same experience. This filling of the Spirit that they experienced and the filling of the Spirit that we read about in the Scriptures and that Paul describes in his parameters for in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, I think it's the same experience. I just think this time there were known languages. There are other times when it's not a known language. I, th- I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul said, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love. I think that introduces a category that there, is, there are within the gift of tongues languages that no man knows that are only known by the angels. And there are many, possibly many dialects within angelic speech that can be carried, that can be known. When we were years ago going to Mexico, I remember as a college student going to Mexico, and we would have a time where we were just asking for God to uh, fall on the new believers and fill them with his spirit. They would know that. we were, And so uh, a buddy of mine would just listen, like, is anybody going to start speaking in English now? Because that would be really cool. It never happened to our 
in our experience, but maybe somebody else did. But here Paul includes two types of tongues in his letter addressing the gift of tongues. On the day of Pentecost, those around the disciples understood the proclamation. They understood that, look, they are in their own tongues. This is verse 11, the end of verse 11. In our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Now, that's not necessarily Jesus came and this is how you have to trust him. It's just, it's extolling God. And the gift of tongues does that as well. They're just praising God. It could be that when someone speaks with their tongue given as a gift of the Spirit, the angels themselves are the only ones understanding the deep mysteries and the the extolling that is spoken of that the believer is unaware of. I do believe that the gift of tongues is still available for all believers to access. It's It's not a requirement for salvation. It's a gift. It's not... It's not the evidence that you do have the Holy No, I think when we trust Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit is ours in fullness. And, and I get from the Apostle Paul telling the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. That's a continual. Keep doing it. Keep being filled with the Spirit. It is a mysterious and wonderful gift that, that does this. It enhances, and this is my experience, I, I have the gift of tongues. Uh, my wife does not. She's asked for years and years and years. And she's asked so much that she feels like something's wrong with her. But there's nothing wrong. There's just not everybody has that gift. But I will tell you this. When I, and usually when I'm in my prayer times, uh, I am praying in the Spirit. I do think it's, it's a heavenly language. Whether it's known, I don't know. Whether it's a dead language. Whether, I don't know if I'm speaking Latin. But here's what happens. It is a gift that enhances the experience of God's presence for me in ways that are beyond words, beyond my understanding of words. It edifies the believer. And so I do believe it is a gift for us to to ask for and experience. But now, you've been a part of our church. I'm not changing doctrine right now. I'm not all of a sudden saying, okay, so now we're going to have time every week where we need to pray for the gift of tongues to be. I'm not saying that. You know who we are. You know who I am. Because it excites me just as much when somebody has the the gift of helps or service or somebody's going to pick up a hammer and and, hang my shutters on the... That is... I rejoice, talking about Tony, I rejoice over that just as much as the gift of tongues to the believer. I rejoice in all of it. And so this is not something that we're, oh, now I'm looking through Acts, and so we have to change some things. We're not saying that. We're just saying, let's pursue all of them. Let's pursue all of them and see what the Holy Spirit does. But I will tell you this. When you are filled with the Spirit, Language or not, tongues or not, when you are filled with the Spirit, you have a deep, mysterious, wonderful awareness of your experience of God's presence. That's what the filling of the Spirit is. So it's not like we're going in looking, if you're asking for that, if you're looking for a prayer language, if you're looking for that, it's not that. It's, God, I want to experience your presence. And, and sometimes we know when we, when the, in Romans chapter 8, when the Spirit who groans with us, with groanings that are too deep for words, sometimes we feel that depth, you're being filled with the Spirit. 
And sometimes that looks like you go out and just tell people about the glory and wonder of God in, in ways that you just, where did that come from? How did I know that? The Spirit does that. And that's God's promise. Jesus promised that the Spirit will give you those words. I lost my place. I think what we see also, you know, that Pentecost is a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. I think with everybody in town and they're hearing something, they're seeing, uh, they're hearing, seeing, and, and, and they're, they're God particularly coming to them in their own native language. I think it's evidence of the first fruits of salvation where Jesus is being given and now we're getting ready to see Peter's going to preach, and then 3,000 are added to the church that day. God planned this event quite accordingly. The day he announces his relocation of his presence from the temple to the hearts of his people, there are devout Jews from countries far and wide, from all points on the compass. And God would then work a first future of a spiritual harvest when that Jesus, that happens when Jesus is proclaimed. Because some of them had to have gone back or written about this experience. But God, he's just over it all. He's over God. He's over his presence in his people. He is in us. So I would I'd conclude by saying this. I think this, is, uh, this evidence is when God comes to us and locates his presence in us. I think we see a very... A peculiarity about God's power. And I, I draw that out from the peculiarity of the languages, the, all of these different languages that are heard. That's God coming to each one of those people saying, I see you. I want you. And maybe we, and this is a concluding thought, but I, I would like to have a moment to pray over you if you desire. We need God's power to show up in particular ways in our lives. And sometimes we disqualify the particular area that we're asking for. Maybe we think it's too selfish or maybe it's just never going to happen. But God wants to show up in the particular areas of our lives with great power. He wants his spirit to be known. He wants his presence to be felt. And so can we ask for that? Yeah. Let's ask for that. Let's ask for the feeling of the Spirit that, that, that feels like we just we experience His presence in ways that produce a joy and a peace and a love and a grace for ourselves, grace for others. And it's just beyond words. It's beyond what we can ever imagine. Does that make sense? I would give it to you this example because I'm going to put Harry and Catherine back on the spot. I want to pray over you uh, for the baby coming, but I'm just going to pray that all through that experience, God's presence is known and there's peace and safety because that's his filling of the Spirit. That's, that's what I'm talking about. That's when we look for those particular ways. Like I said years ago, uh, in, our, in our family, we pray for the lost a lot. Lost keys, lost phone, lost wallet. And God always answers. 
He always answers because we think that it's too, it's too minuscule for him to answer, but he does. And I love that. My wife's really the one who's like, we need to pray. I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to do that. But every single time, God comes through, and it just reminds me he is particular, and he wants us to know his presence. So if, if you desire prayer, um, we're just going to have some worship music on, but you can, you're free to go, you're free to linger or, or converse with one another, pray for one another, however. But if you just want prayer for anything, for anything whatsoever, if you just come up here, uh, I'm going to just make myself available for a little while, okay? Lord, we want to experience your presence. And a lot of times, uh, the enemy of our souls wants to keep us thinking that you're too busy or you're too high off or somewhere around the world that's, that's not for us. God, I pray that you would show up in very powerfully particular ways. And we'd have more reason to glorify you. We'd have more reason to witness of your greatness and your love. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.